Let's remain standing as we bow our heads and as we pray. Lord, as we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we want to hear the testimony about God. Help me as a pastor not to rely on human wisdom or eloquence or wise and persuasive words, but help me to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And may we experience the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that our faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Please do take your seats. If anyone didn't pick up a, a handout hand on the way in, just raise your hand now and one of the, uh, the stewards will come and pass you a handout which will be useful for you this morning, I hope. Do just uh, pop your hands up if you've not got a, got a handout. Thank you. Now, a couple of months ago, this came through our letterbox at home. It is the last ever BT phone book. After 144 years, this is the final printed phone book. It says, final edition, hold on to it forever. Have you had one of these put through your door? Are you in it? Will I find you in it? Well, depending on your age, or if you grew up outside of the UK, you might not even know what one of these is. You can come and have a look later if that's you. Well, as we start this series, maybe you are starting to think of the Bible's view of sexuality, identity, and marriage as being a bit like how we view this phone book now, a relic of a bygone age, at best outdated, laughable in a modern society. That's certainly how Western culture has viewed things in the last 60 years or so. And of course, in, recent, in more recent years, people have gone even further, and some now see Christian sexual ethics as dangerous and harmfully restrictive. Over the course of this spring term, we're going to be spending time listening to a story of greater love, the story of sexuality, identity, and marriage. And my prayer is that we will find that it is not an outdated phone book, ready to be recycled, nor is it a dangerous doctrine, but rather a story that is true, that is good, and that is beautiful. A story in which we find our place and our purpose. A story which gives us confidence, compassion, and courage. Today is a bit different from how I usually preach. You can follow on the, the, on the handouts. There's some extra, extra material on there too that I, I, won't, I won't cover. 
But today what I'm going to do is introduce five recurring themes that will keep coming up during the course of this series, and we'll, we'll build on each one as we go through the series. And the first theme is a story in which we live. At the heart of the universe is a love story. It's the story of God's love for his people expressed in Christ's sacrificial and sufficient love for his bride, the church. And in light of this greater love, God gives us all we need to navigate our human relationships in this beautiful yet broken world. Our marriages, our singleness, our friendships, our church life together. This week is actually National Storytelling Week. Human beings are storytelling creatures. We always have been. Across all all cultures, across all of human history, we have told stories about who we are, about where where we've come from, about where we're heading. And even... Even as we take two months of Sundays and teaching in the midweek and the books on the bookstall, even as we do all of that to listen to the Bible story, let me be really clear that, that this is not the only story that, that you will hear as you go through these weeks. Because we are surrounded all the time by a swirl of, of other stories of sexuality, of identity, of marriage. There are multiple other stories around the world today and through history. Some of them seem outrageous to us. Some seem plausible, partly because some mimic and, and mimic some of the Bible story and then subtly twist it. Other stories approach it a bit like one of those choose-your-own-adventure stories. And some stories are very seductive and persuasive. And so you see that the challenge for pastors like me, pastors mean shepherds, the challenge for shepherds like me is that the flocks that we lead spend a lot of time in the rest of the week being told other stories. This is not the only sermon that you will hear preached at you this week whether it's in the adverts that you see, the storylines in the dramas that you watch, or the expectations of society or social media influence. Have your eyes and your ears open to recognize what's being preached, and I use that word deliberately, being preached at you through the week. And be aware that you spend most of the rest of your time being told other stories of sexuality, identity, and marriage. And be aware that those are very powerful, very seductive stories. And in my experience, most people end up believing whatever they believe about sexuality and identity and marriage on the basis of stories. Sometimes their own stories, sometimes other people's stories, sometimes a whole culture's story. And yet underlying each of these stories is a way of viewing the world. Assumptions about who we are as human beings and assumptions about the purpose of life. 
And of course, this is, this is nothing, nothing new. It was certainly the case for the Christians in Corinth in the first century. Yet as they listened to a story of greater love, they began to understand their own story. And they began to understand and identify and engage with the story that their culture was built on. And as they experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, as they were embraced by a greater love, then a revolution began. So over these weeks, will we, will we listen to the Bible story? Will we find our place in it, in the power of the Holy Spirit? Will we understand better other stories, see what they're founded on, and engage with them? As well as teaching here on Sunday mornings, do come along to our midweek teaching sessions. You can pick up a leaflet from the foyer to find out what they are on that Wednesday or Thursday evenings, the program's there. Uh, and we'll have a bookstall out in the foyer as well, a, very, a selection of very helpful and timely books. And so secondly, as we do all of this in these coming weeks, we'll find that, that one of the main ways that the, the story of greater love is, is, is told is through word pictures. That's our second theme, a picture of the gospel. Deepest truths are often metaphorically expressed, aren't they? He was heartbroken. I died of embarrassment. I've had a few of those moments in my time. Or her jaw hit the floor. Well, God knows this. And so the Bible is full of metaphors, word pictures that show us truth, doctrine on display. And to display that at the heart of the universe is a love story, one of the main pictures that is used in the Bible to communicate God's love is the way that God describes his relationship with his people as that of a husband and a bride. We saw it in positive terms in our reading from Jeremiah chapter 2 earlier, verse 2 or part of it. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. I was a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not so. Elsewhere, if you're familiar at all with the book of Hosea, you'll know that that is a very dramatic and explicit picture of God's relationship with his people. It's the kind of book that if I was reading it at the front here, I'd just be going really red with some of the language that's used. It's, it's a dramatic picture of God's relationship with his people told through the story of Hosea, his wife Gomer and their children. And these, these more, to be honest, these more negative pictures, they're not easy for us to read. As it describes the spiritual adultery of men and women of Israel in, in unequivocal terms and painful pictures. If we'd read on in Jeremiah through to chapter 6, we'd read from verse 6 onwards. Just, just, just let me read some of these verses, Jeremiah 6, 6 onwards. This is not easy, an easy read. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, 
She defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. Have a look at what Ed Shaw, I think this is on the handout, what Ed Shaw set rights of this picture language. Why God uses it. I don't think I understood the full offense of my own sin, my own rejection of God until I saw it in these sexual terms. A spiritual adultery towards the God who has given me everything I enjoy. Even the things and people I then idolize as substitutes for him. I don't think I'd grasped the full wonder of his persistent, gracious love for me until I saw him as a jilted husband who incredibly loved me before I ever loved him and who keeps on loving me even when I have stopped loving him. Isaiah 54 verse 5, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And so we leave the Old Testament seeing God's people longing for their lover, their husband, to return for them, to redeem them. And we're going to keep returning to this picture of the gospel throughout the Bible because it has very significant implications for our story. And in that, we're beginning to see our third theme, and I think it's over the page on the handout now. A window into our hearts. As we trace the story of God's people through the Bible, we see the relationship with God pictured through the language of a marriage between a husband and a wife. And we consistently see the connection for us as human beings between sexual matters and spiritual matters. And what I mean by this is in our longing for intimacy, in our looking for love, we need to look beyond the the surface sexual desires and behaviors and to see what that is then revealing about our spiritual heart. For example, when we read through the story of God's people in the Old Testament, we, are, we usually find that when ancient Israel sinned spiritually, they were usually sinning sexually too, and vice versa. And at the end of the passage that was read from the prophet Jeremiah back in chapter 2, did you see the very powerful picture that was given at the end of that, that reading? Verse 11 onwards, Jeremiah 2, But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. As human beings, our capacity for sexual feelings and expression gives us a window into our hearts. Colin Crichton writes, Sexuality is a particularly illuminating window into our soul. Throughout Scripture, the connection between spirituality and sexuality is explicit. 
The union of one flesh is both sexual and spiritual. The physical embrace of sexuality is a shadow of the divine embrace of spirituality. We long for intimacy. We're looking for love. We're thirsty for living water. Yet our search has led us only to idolatry, broken cisterns, dry wells. Our story of sexuality, identity, and marriage is a window into our hearts through which we see both intimacy and idolatry. As you look at your own life, as you look at your own heart, what do you see? Colin Crichton again, sexually and spiritually, we long for something more. We want to stop hiding. We want to stop using and being used. We want to be seen and known and loved. We want to be precious to someone, to belong with someone, to be safe within their embrace. We long for someone who sees the beauty within our brokenness. Someone who looks on us with eyes of grace. Someone who sees us as we truly are and sees past the shame. Every story has a beginning and an end. And every story has a middle. Crucially, Every story has an author. Yes, every story has characters. Every story has heroes. Crucially, every story has an author. And when books are turned into films, sometimes, you might have seen this, sometimes the author of the book will play a cameo role in the film, just in the background in one of the scenes. For example, Michael Morpugo, how do you say that? I've not, I should have checked that first. In In Warhurst. Warhorse appears in it. Uh, Someone tell me how to pronounce that before the 11.15. Thank you. Peter Benchley plays a reporter in a brief scene in Jaws. Cameo roles. See if you can spot them. But in in the Bible story, the author is in the story, but he's not a cameo appearance in the background. God, the author, enters the story as the central character as he walks onto the stage as Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. And we're now going to read of an encounter that Jesus has with one woman and see how Jesus walks into her story. See how Jesus pictures the gospel, how he sees into her heart and how he brings balm to her wound. So if you have a church Bible, please turn to page 1066, page 1066, John chapter 4. And Catherine and I are going to read that story as we listen to this encounter. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, 
near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? Thank you, Catherine. This is a revolutionary encounter. Jesus speaks with a woman who, she would have been beneath the contempt of a respectable religious leader of the day because of her ethnicity, her religion, her sex, and her sexual history. And did you notice that we're told that Jesus was tired, alone, and thirsty and hungry. And those are all classic circumstances in which 
human beings tend to sin in our relationships. And yet, did you also see how Jesus approaches the whole situation with dignity and complete integrity? Jesus speaks with her and he understands her heart's deep longing. He offers her the spiritual satisfaction that she's been looking for all her life. And at first the woman misses the the metaphor. She thinks Jesus is speaking literally about drinking water. But no, Jesus understands that her search for intimacy has led her to seek fake forms of intimacy. Intimacy that could never be satisfied by idolatry, but only by the living water from the living God. She longed for something more, some one more. One with whom she would be safe, known, loved, embraced, belonging, precious. And a succession of men had not satisfied. But this man, Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, would provide living water that wells up to eternal life. The woman meets Jesus, and it's not just her that finds living water, but if you look at verse 40, if you have a Bible open, you'll see that many Samaritans believed in Jesus because of her story. As she finds a greater love, so do many others because of her story. Your story may be very different to hers or remarkably similar. Whatever your story, however your longing for love has been expressed, however cracked and dry you have found those cisterns to be, Whatever idolatry your search for intimacy has led you to, Christ comes and offers living water. Jesus knew this woman's story. Jesus knows your story. Jesus knows what your heart longs for. Jesus knows where your longings have taken you. Jesus knows the hurts and the disappointments. He sees into your heart. Jesus knows your past, He knows your present. Jesus knows your relationship history. Jesus knows the pain that you have suffered and any pain that you have caused. And do you see how Jesus Jesus is not a threat to you either? Jesus speaks with you, even if others would not, as they wouldn't have done to that woman. Jesus speaks with you, knowing all that he knows, and invites you in.
Jesus is strong and kind. We see in this passage that it is safe to be seen by Jesus, even in our shame. We see that Christ's embrace is a gracious embrace. Christ's embrace makes us beautiful despite our shame because he sees the brokenness and mends us. Christ sees us hiding and pursues us. Christ sees our shame and covers us. He sees our fear and holds us close. He pays our debts and redeems us. Jesus alone gives living water that will satisfy. And he offers a balm for our wounds. Our fourth theme. As Colin Crichton says, the struggles that we have deep in our soul will find a way out into our lives. And those struggles, those wounds that have been infected by sin will echo into both our spirituality and our sexuality. This is a human problem, a problem for all of us. We're far more broken than we realize. We, all of us, are far more sexually broken than we realize. When we look through the window deep into our own hearts and into the hearts of others, when we see the the sin and the scars deep in someone's heart, how should we react? A significant part, tragically, of the difficulties and the hurt is that The church has not always told the Bible story of sexuality and identity and marriage well, lovingly, with truth and grace. Too often we've imbibed too much of a culture's story. And we have to learn where the church has caused unnecessary wounds and hurts. And at the same time, we're not to fall into the opposite error. We shouldn't be like the prophets and the priests whom Jeremiah criticizes, verse, chapter 6, verse 14. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Our eyes should be filled with compassion, seeing not just the surface behaviors, but the deep wounds in lives. And we should point one another to the one who alone can bring balm. Many people carry deep wounds from what's been done to us or what we have done in the past. We live in a culture that is quick to cancel. But as a church, we should be quick to have compassion. We live in a culture that is quick to cancel. But as a church, we should be quick to have compassion. And of all human beings, those who know God's love in Christ, surely we can have the most compassion for messy situations 
where God's boundaries have been crossed, where God's best has been fallen far short of. And we'll see how actually we're all in those situations. Balm for our wounds. And our fifth theme is a path walked together. Jeremiah 6, 6, verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. Tell me, do you find yourself at some kind of crossroads? A crossroads in which story you believe? Or a crossroads in in which story you are living? Well, my prayer is that in this series, as the weeks go by, we will look. We will ask for the ancient paths, the good way, and walk in it together and find rest for our soul. On July the 30th, 1945, the the, the ship, the USS Indianapolis, was crossing the Pacific Ocean and was struck by an enemy torpedo. More than 900 men, some badly injured, ended up in the seawater. They were without fresh water to drink. They had no shelter from the sun, no protection from, from sharks. And of those 900, only 316 survived the four days and five nights in the ocean. The chief medical officer, Captain Lewis Haynes, was one of the survivors. Listen carefully to his account of those long hours in the ocean, which I'll read. When the hot sun came out and we were in this crystal clear seawater, you were so thirsty that you couldn't believe it was not good enough to drink. I had a hard time convincing the men that they shouldn't drink the seawater. The really young ones, you take away their hope. You take away their water and food. They would drink the salt water and they would go fast. I can remember trying to urge men who were drinking salt water to try to stop it. An awful account. But one that illustrates the consequences of drinking from sources of water that seem so enticing. Following desires that seem so innocent to our spiritual health, but yet are like the salt water of the ocean. The chief medical officer on that ship had the knowledge that the salt water would have such a devastating effect and had to plead with the sailors not to drink it. The salt water looks so clear and innocent, but but once taken in, it not only fails to satisfy, but makes us desire more and more of what is actually very damaging to us. And if we insist on writing our own story, 
if we ignore the picture of the gospel, if we forsake the spring of living water and drink from cisterns cracked and dry, it puts people in untold danger. Despite appearances, believing and following other stories about sexuality, identity, and marriage doesn't ultimately satisfy for the same reason that salt water does not. We're made for what the Bible calls living water, truth and life in Christ. But we can only see that if we're trusting in God's revelation and wisdom in the Bible. Only then will we see other stories as Captain Haynes saw the salt water of the sea. And actually, God has much more for us than even just water. Because we are invited, every one of us, to a wedding feast. The wedding of Christ to his people. And we have a foretaste of that great feast as we share the bread and the wine together now, as Catherine leads us. But let's bow our heads for a moment of silent reflection.